After marking hymn number eight, as Brother Eddie asked us to do, hymn number eight, it is a joyful enterprise that allows us to arrive at this point in our lesson, at this point in our service today. Indeed, the joyfulness that is able to fill our hearts in the character of our appreciation, not only in thanksgiving to God, but also in the opportunity that He has allowed us to gather on this first day of the week. It is a truly great thing to consider that the first day that has... Of course, that opportunity to worship God in spirit and in truth sets the week off on a good way and helps us appreciate indeed how that God can be with and has promised to do so with all of those who are His faithful children. This morning, as was mentioned in the announcements, we are blessed with visitors who've come our way, our regular membership who also here. And as we have prayed and as we have sung these songs together, might I invite your attention to a lesson about a character who isn't all that pleasant. The devil. Who is he? You may have noted in the bulletin that in fact the title of the lesson is The Devil, Part 1, Who Is He? I would invite us to begin a series of lessons today as we look at some of the aspects and features from the biblical perspective of this character known as the devil. Much, of course, is said about him and of him, and this information is certainly very needful and very important for us. It is with that in mind that, in fact, some introductory thoughts might well be in order. Thoughts that will, in fact, challenge us to appreciate the thrust of the series, and even more particularly, the matter of the lesson today. When one makes mention of the devil, no doubt that from an early age we hear about him... We see him portrayed and graphically presented in various ways. We understand that he is in fact set forth on television characters in certain ways. May I submit to you though that there are some other deep questions that might well be asked. This set is not meant to be exhaustive, but it is in fact a very important set of questions. Does the devil exist? If so, where did he come from? Furthermore, not only those two, but you'll consider where does he now reside? And as if those aren't deep enough, look at the ones that follow. What is the nature of this character? What kind of work is it that he engages in, and how does he go about that work? Furthermore, what is his destiny? And maybe other questions also readily come to your mind and mine. The point being, some of these questions are rather profound. I would invite us to give thought to the Word of God throughout the series and see if we, or rather if God, has shed some light on that subject so that you and I can confidently answer them. And thus, that being said, those questions will be the driving mechanism for the layout of the lesson. We will look at the various questions and see if we cannot present answers to them based on the revelation of the Word of God. And so the first matter to be dispensed with is simply this, does the devil exist? Let me broach that subject and that question in the following way. This particular slide has a number of thoughts on it, and as we move our way down it, I think you'll discover with me some interesting tangential matters that relate to the existence of the devil. First of all, it is no secret In fact, it is a rather common matter to appreciate that the world in general has some very varied ways of looking upon the devil. There are very many individuals who consider him directly to be as I have stated him at the top. They basically think he's worthy of being ignored even if he exists. 
in their mind, the devil, you see, is nothing more in some instances than a made-up creature whose intent is to help teach morality and that which is good. All of us understand that throughout history, humans have been talented enough to write fictional articles. You may remember some of Aesop's fables where a good moral story was told by making up a character. There are many who put the devil into that same category. They are not convinced he exists. And even if he is, in their mind, he does not impact the daily walk of life, and hence he's not worthy of any further consideration. It is with that in mind I would challenge each of us to note there really is but one reliable source to which we can turn for information on the devil's existence. For after all, since he has the nature of a being that's not physical, we can't go to a math book or a science book and find incontrovertible proof. But we can go to the Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. It is the opening statement in that list that I would bring to your attention. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. It is a matter of doctrine whether the devil exists or not. It is a matter of doctrine as to his nature, his work, his character, his destiny. All of that is doctrine. And thus, we just noted the Bible is profitable for doctrine. And so it is to the Holy Scriptures that we can turn with trustworthy confidence and appreciate that any answer concerning the devil will in fact be the correct and proper answer, regardless and despite what man may say. It is with that thought in mind, the Bible answers it in no uncertain terms about whether the devil exists. Does the devil exist? Let's look at a few passages. May we begin in Matthew 13. On that occasion, the Lord was speaking in some parables to a number of individuals gathered to hear on that occasion. Seven parables He taught in the concourse of that chapter. One of them is the parable of the tares. And perhaps you well remember, as do I, the way in which that parable unfolded. The Lord spoke about, of course, spiritual matters, but He did so by saying that there was a man who sowed good seed in his field, but an enemy came at night and sowed tares in amongst the wheat. The time came that there was an understanding that there were tares amongst the wheat, and the servants asked, what are we to do about this? And the master, of course, said, let them alone for now. And then in the time of harvest, you, of course, will gather and separate them. The tares you'll burn, the good wheat you'll gather into the barn. But as the Lord explained all of that, here's what He said. The Son of Man sowed the good seed... The devil sowed the tares. He went on to say that the field is the world, the harvest is the end of time, the reapers are the angels. One by one, the Lord affirmed that the elements in the physical statement had their analogs in its spiritual meaning. Did you notice, though, what the Lord said? The Son of Man sowed the good seed. Is the Son of Man real? Does Jesus exist? Without a doubt. He walked on this planet about 2,000 years ago. He was here. You notice he says, the field is the world. Does the world exist? Absolutely. We walk on it. We touch it. We enjoy it. We live upon it. He said, furthermore, the harvest will take place at the end of time. 
Is the world going to come to an end? Without a doubt. He said that the angels are the reapers. Do angels exist? Jesus here said they do. Amongst all of that, He said that the enemy that sowed the tares is the devil. If the Son of Man exists, and if the world exists, and if those other matters exist, is it not then reasonable to conclude the devil exists? The Lord wasn't just making up some mythical, legendary figure. The devil is real. Look further at Luke 4, verses 1 and following. On that occasion, the Savior, as we well remember, had just been baptized... And now the time had come that he came to John the Baptist to be immersed. Or rather, after his baptism, he came, was driven into the wilderness. And it was on that occasion that he was tempted, tempted by the devil. Now, perhaps you and I should reflect a bit upon that and ask, in what way does that affirm the reality of the devil? First of all, may I suggest this. Is it a fact that you and I are tempted We know that we are. The New Testament teaches that you and I are tempted. The point is, the text says the Lord was tempted in all points like as we are. Who is it that tempts us? The devil. Who is it that tempted Jesus? The text says the devil. And the text of the New Testament helps us see then that is one of the reasons that you and I can rely so lovingly and so powerfully upon Jesus. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet He never sinned. And in that way, He can provide comfort, assistance, and strength to us that we might overcome temptation. The conclusion is an easy one, isn't it? If the devil was some mythical, legendary, made-up figure, then the Lord was not tempted in the same way we are. And that means that He is not able to provide the help and the aid and the sustenance to you and me. And that undermines the integrity of all of the New Testament. The devil's real and he tempted the Son of God. In those three temptations of which we have explicit record, we remember, turn these stones into bread if you be the Son of God. And furthermore, cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple if you be the Son of God. For in fact, he will not let thee dash thy foot against a stone. And you remember the third one? If you'll bow down before me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world that you can see. As the Lord, in fact, addressed all of those temptations in every one of them, He opposed the reality of the devil by quoting from the Word of God, It is written, He said, It is written, It is written. And as He quoted the sacred Word of God, the devil was sent packing. The text expressly says the devil left him. Might we appreciate then today how can you and I overcome temptation? The first line of defense is a working knowledge of the Word of God. It is a thorough appreciation and a capable application of it in our lives, isn't it? So that we are aware of those subtle means of the devil and we can oppose them using the strength of the Word of God. Is the devil real? Without a doubt. Look furthermore at Jude verse 9. There is a very matter-of-fact statement herein made. In the midst of this chapter in which Jude makes reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, and we know that they existed, Genesis chapter 19, he makes reference, in fact, to the matter of Lot. 
We know that Lot existed also, of course. Again, Genesis chapter 19. He makes reference to these other events known very easily from Old Testament character. And yet, right after that, he makes this very matter-of-fact statement that Michael and the devil contended over the body of Moses. We are well aware that Michael, the archangel, exists. And we know that Moses existed, and we even are given record in Deuteronomy 34 of Moses' death. And now the question is, did Jude suddenly make up this character known as the devil? If so, what point is in it? Obviously, there would be no point. He stated very matter-of-factly, there is a devil. He actually had an argument with, a contention with Michael, over the character and destiny of the body of Moses. That is a simple declarative statement, isn't it? Does the devil exist? Again, no question about it. It is to be noted then that we might look at one more text. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one. this was not long prior, of course, to the ending of the book of Luke. And yet on that occasion, Peter had a conversation with the Master. And Jesus very directly said, Simon, Simon... Behold, Satan hath desired to have thee, that he may sift thee as wheat. Again, that is a very straightforward statement, isn't it? There is no exaggeration in it. Jesus just said, Peter, you need to know something. I've prayed for you, but you should be aware that the devil has desired to have you, that he may in fact sift and sieve you just as surely as one would wheat. Jesus, in fact, here clearly affirmed the existence of the devil. He wasn't made up. He wasn't just a myth. He wasn't some ancient legend that had no basis in truth. Satan existed. And yet he still exists, of course, as well. Some of these statements at the bottom, then, I think would be a fair conclusion to this slide. Mankind has taken so many interesting viewpoints toward the devil. Many times the human family has made fun of him. You well remember the TV shows showing some character dressed in red, horns on his head, a long tail behind him carrying a pitchfork. We remember the picture. And I might add, it's sometimes difficult to take an image like that seriously. That makes the devil out to be no more powerful than you or me. That makes him to be just something that a human being has made up. You might well remember that one of Flip Wilson's famous statements in regard to that TV show, the devil made me do it. And he'd laugh and joke about it. It is no joking matter. The devil isn't just a man in a red suit. He isn't just one who carries a pitchfork with a long tail and horns. He's real. Absolutely real. Just as real as the Son of God. Just as real as, in fact, the angels. Just as real as, in fact, the other testimonies of matter that you and I have studied this morning already. That reality, of course, prompts then a series of following questions. Having answered the first one, does he exist? It seems the next one must be, then where did he come from? How did he come to have the character he now has? Did God make him that way? If not then how do you explain his origin? The Bible thankfully gives us some information about that. So might we take a journey over the next few moments and see what does the Bible say about the origin of this one called the devil. I've entitled this slide simply, The Origin of the Devil. As we give some thought 
to both Old and New Testament in this matter, might we begin in the following way? It might be an initial consideration that perhaps the devil is eternal. Maybe he's like God in that sense. Maybe he's like the Son of God in that sense. Perhaps he is eternal and thus he was not created. We can immediately dispense with that thought. The Bible does not present the devil as eternal. We might well begin in Job chapter 1. Those entities, those beings that are eternal, also possess the characteristics of all powerfulness, that is to say omnipotence. But yet we notice in that chapter that restrictions were placed on the devil. Do you recall? He had the nerve to in fact challenge God with respect to the faithfulness of Job. And it was on that occasion we remember that God placed restrictions upon him. You are able to touch his life, but you cannot take his life. Those restrictions indicate that he's not all-powerful and thus he would not be eternal either. As if that isn't enough, we may turn to Revelation 20. We there appreciate the fact that the devil also will be cast into a lake burning with fire and with brimstone. And notice, even though he will not prefer it, he will be powerless to do anything about it. The text affirms he will be cast into that place. It is to be noted then that this devil is not an eternal being. He does not possess that characteristic like God does. He doesn't possess that characteristic, in fact, like the Son of God or the Holy Spirit. And so, if He's not eternal, He must have been created. He must have come into being at some point by virtue of a creation. That, of course, only deepens our consideration. In fact, in the following way, when we return to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we read about the Genesis creation account, but we don't read anything about a devil being created. There's light and a firmament, and there's bodies of water, and there's plant life, and there's sun and stars and moon. But we read nothing about a creation of a devil. In fact, you might notice, there seems to even be a problem here. For in Genesis chapter 1, after each one of the days of creation, the text says that it was good. And then after the sixth day of creation, the text says that as God panoramically looked upon all that He had made, He said, Behold, it was very good. All that God had made was good, but the devil's not good. Yet we've learned the devil had to have been created. Let's finish that story. The Bible does put it together for us. In fact, here's one of the critical things to notice. The devil was not created in the way that he now is. He wasn't evil when he first came into being. That is to say, he was not fashioned and made in the way that he now is. In fact, notice the following with me. The Bible does easily affirm that God created those entities known as angels. Psalm 148 verse 5 tells us explicitly, God created the angels. If one gives some reflective thought to the nature of His creation of angels, those beings that are ministering spirits to the saints of God, Hebrews 1.14, that then challenges us to note the following. What about the rank and order of those angels as they were created? 
it is on two occasions that the following pieces of information are given. We are told that when God created those angels, they were placed into a hierarchy. That is to say, there was a set station that they occupied. Some angels were higher, others were lower. They had various habitations that they occupied in the language of Jude verse 6. It is to be noted then that as these angels occupied the various stations, as they served then appropriately under the command and will of God, that leads us to note this. Those angels were subject to divine law. They were subject to heavenly and divine edicts. We know that because some of them sinned. And sin is a transgression of God's law, and thus, if they were able to sin, they had to have been subject to a law of God. Some of those angels, you see, did not like the place in which God placed them. They wanted greater authority, it would appear. They wanted greater majesty and power. Some of the ones lesser in rank wanted the higher rank. Sounds a bit like those who desire pomp and circumstance still today, doesn't it? But some of those angels rebelled against God. They were unsatisfied with the place God placed them. They were unhappy with the rank God had given them. And in that rebellion, we read of the following things. God did not tolerate the rebellion. They were not able to overcome God, of course. And the text says God cast them out of heaven. He cast them out. We might quickly learn how important it is to never rebel against God. One will not win. You can never win a contest against God. And yet these angels that were cast out, we learn in 2 Peter 2.4 that inasmuch as they were guilty of sin, they were thus reserved until that great day of judgment when their final sentence of eternal doom will be finally pronounced. So far we've learned then in regard to these angels that some of them had the nerve to rebel against God. Let's take that thought and proceed a little further. What happened to those rebellious angels and who were they? In fact, the following seems overwhelmingly to be the case. These angels, of course, had the opportunity and they had the capacity to, in fact, live harmoniously there in heaven with God. They were created in that realm and with the earnestness of their position. And yet, some of them chose to rebel. Of that sum, you may note the following. It would appear from Jesus' statement in Matthew 25, 41, the devil was the ringleader of the rebellious ones. It would appear that he was an angel, but in time he came to reject the station that God had given him. And as such, he chose to rebel against God, and he became thus the leader of that rebellious group, and at that point he came to be called the devil. Jesus spoke on that occasion about the devil and his angels as if he was the leader of the rebellious group. It would thus seem again, God didn't create any evil being called a devil. He created angels. And yet here was an angel who was unhappy with his station and in his rebellion he became evil. You may notice even further, this rebellion as it took place apparently was such that it occurred early on in God's creative activity. Because in Job 38 verses 4 and following, we appreciate the fact that something is there said about what the angels observed. And thus, it would seem that rebellion happened rather quickly. 
It didn't take these angels long to be unhappy with their station and to rebel against God. It is with that in mind that that does bring us to ask this question. What about the nature of this devil? We've learned it exists, and we've learned where he came from. He was initially an angel, but he chose to rebel against God. And in that character of evil, his final destiny is now sealed. But what about his nature? What can you and I say about him? This is really where we reach the point of having to question so much of that which the human family has thought about the devil. That man again in a red suit vastly underestimates who he is and that of which he is capable. Let's then spend the remainder of our time this morning looking at the nature of this being, and we will in fact begin in the following way, by carrying it from where we just left it off. Because of that rebellion, God placed an eternal sentence upon that devil and upon all of those angels that rebelled with him. That sentence is spoken in Jude verse 6. They are reserved in chains under the character of everlasting judgment. You'll notice that they are not given any opportunity for forgiveness. They are given no opportunity to in fact have that sin forgiven. They are given no opportunity to be redeemed, if you please. Jesus did not die for them. Hence, based on that rebellion, they forevermore are dictated to be going to hell without question and without any other discussion. It is with that thought in mind that the certainty of that destiny is now stated for us in the Holy Scriptures. But you'll notice in 2 Peter 2, 4, it will finally take its ultimate decree on that day of judgment. That's what Peter says. Even though they already know what the sentence is, it will finally be made on that event of that day of judgment when time shall end. For it's then, as the Revelation writer tells us, they'll be cast into that lake that burns with fire and brimstone. But then that character only challenges us even further along this line. That leads us to ask, if the devil is already beaten, if he knows his final end is hell, and if he knows what that ultimate end and finality will be, why does he go about doing what he does on a daily basis? If he can't defeat God, why even try? It would seem that the Bible presents it in the following way. You'll notice, and at the top I stated in the following way, for the devil, the war is already lost. He has already been beaten, the book of Revelation tells us. He will be cast into that lake that burns with fire and brimstone. The war is lost. But that doesn't mean that all the battles are. Battles are ongoing day by day. As he, in fact, seeks to do all the damage that he can do, he strives, in fact, to cause tumults and difficulties and to wreak havoc in all the ways that he can. The battles are still ongoing. But the final war for him is lost. That does raise the question, what about these battles? I've tried to state it in the following way. The devil tried to attack God once. Remember, he rebelled against the absolute authority of God and he lost. He was beaten and defeated and cast out of heaven, Revelation 12. He's not, shall we say, foolish enough to try that again. He is not able, in fact, to overcome God, and He knows that. 
Thus, if he is unable to attack God, what other means of attack can he make so that he can bring to naught the work of God? You'll notice that he turns his attention to the finest of God's creation. Of all the things that God made in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, what stands at the pinnacle? What stands at the zenith? One can speak of the firmament and light and the sun and the stars and the moon and the animals that walk on land and the animals in the water. But none of those things are the pinnacle of God's creation. The one and only thing made in the image of God. The one and only thing made in His likeness, Genesis 5.1 and Genesis 1.26, is human beings. Here we have a creature that you'll notice is an immortal spirit. From the time that it comes into being, it's eternal. It'll never die. You and I will never die. Here thus is a being not like an animal, not like some inanimate object like the moon or like some other entity. Here is a being that's eternal. Here's then a fine place to wage a battle. If the devil thus can wreak havoc and separate his prized creation from him, and we are God's prized creation. We are the ones who He sent His Son to die for. We are the ones that have the hope of heaven. We are the ones that are made in His image and likeness. And if the devil can separate us from Him, removing some of those prized treasures that heaven may in fact enjoy, the devil will have won a battle. He will have won a portion of those battles. No wonder then we can make this statement that the devil's mission is to sever those ties between God and His prized creation, the one on whom He showered the most affection and love, the creation on whom He gave the greatest intensity of His being. After all, God dispatched the prized possession of heaven, the Son, for you and for me. Jesus didn't come for turtles and whales and snakes and skunks. He didn't come because there was a problem with the sun or the moon. He came because there was a problem with you and me. That problem, of course, God you all along was going to be brought about by this devil and by this one who was able to bring temptation before the human family. Is it not then able to state it like this? Sin now enters into the picture. You see, this devil can't make you and me sin but He can put temptation before us, and then by our failure we will sin. No wonder we read in Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And returning this, notice what James affirmed. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We notice then that there is one who is able to perhaps excite our lusts by bringing circumstances before us. And then when we pursue the lust, give in to it if you please, and thus allow that to become sin... We are the ones who are treading that pathway that gives the victory in that battle to the devil. He has succeeded. We are now separated from the God who loved us. We're now separated from the one who would enjoy us for eternity with Him. The devil has won that little battle. 
you'll notice with me beyond all of that, a great deal, it would seem, can be learned about this devil just by looking at some of the names and descriptive phrases that the Scriptures use with respect to him. In fact, this list is a bit lengthy, but let's notice the ones that are listed. The devil is called Satan. That word Satan literally means the adversary. You'll notice its reference in Zechariah 3.1. Adversary means opponent or one that is against. It's easy to see the devil, friend, is against you and against me. He does not have your best interest at heart. He does not have your welfare in his mind. In the near term, it may seem so, but I'll assure you, as does the Bible, that he has eventually that which will harm you. In the short term, it may look fine, but in the long term, it'll doom your soul. That's what he wants. He can masquerade this which looks pleasing and attractive for now, but all the while, in the final analysis, he knows. He knows that it will doom your soul. He's the adversary. And beyond that, he's called the devil. Literally, that word in Greek means the slanderer. Today, we know in courts of law, when one slanders another, he speaks something bad about him. Or he says something that in fact harms his reputation. Keep in mind, the devil's not interested in your good reputation. He's interested in destroying it. He wants to make sure that your name is tarnished. He wants you to be marred in the eyes of your family and others. He doesn't want you to be an upstanding citizen and surely not an upstanding Christian. You see, he's the devil. Beyond that, he's called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Immediately we appreciate we should never underestimate His power. We learned earlier He's not all-powerful like God, but that doesn't mean that He has no power at all. He is a ferocious and fierce character, and He is powerful. We, if we vastly underestimate Him, do a great damage to ourselves. For just as surely as we can underestimate other things that are powerful, He will gobble us up in no time flat, if He can. The God of this world, notice in Ephesians 2, 2, He's called the prince of the powers of the air. Powers of the air. He has such influence upon earth. There are so many who are those that follow Him. There are so many who choose to do His bidding rather than God's bidding. He is called the prince of the powers of the air. The ancient world was filled with civilizations and societies that walk down the pathway following certainly behind the devil. And today there are still many who fall right in line behind him. As if that isn't enough, notice what else he's called. In John 8, he's called the father of lies. He will never tell you the truth. He will deceive, he will beguile, he will mislead, all the while attempting to make what he says look reasonable. But he is a liar. And he's the father of liars. We might well remember that even the first instance we encounter him in all the Word of God, he was a liar. There was Adam and Eve living so joyously in the Garden of Eden. Everything they wanted, they had. They didn't lack for anything. And yet here the subtle serpent appeared, entered into conversation with Eve, and in a matter of a few verses convinced her that she needed something that she didn't have. And it was the very forbidden fruit she wasn't supposed to partake of. 
Satan was behind that. Was he in fact real? Did he have her best interest at heart? He didn't. Don't you know how often she regretted ever listening to him? And Adam regretted partaking of that forbidden fruit as well. Even beyond that, he's called the great dragon in that text that Brother Ted read for us earlier. In that book of Revelation, in chapters 12 and following, we are brought face to face with this entity called a great dragon. He's mighty. He's powerful. He's ferocious. And he, in fact, has at his very desire the breathing of the fire against the nature of God's creation in the church. Last verse of Revelation 12 tells us he is out to destroy the church. He's out to get you and me. Oh, it's true that dragon may seem to be an interesting way of describing him, but it does highlight just how powerful and just how intent he is. One of the things you might remember about dragons is they're aggressive. You didn't play around with a dragon. So too the devil is aggressive. He won't wait for you to come to him. He'll search you out and he'll search me out. Those weaknesses in your life, those ways in which he can bring temptations, he will find them. No wonder we need to wear a complete armament in Ephesians chapter 6. Everything from a helmet of salvation to feet shod with the preparation of the gospel and everything in between covered with truth so that we will be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. His other names, he's called Beelzebub in Matthew 12, 24. On this occasion, there were those who said, this Jesus is actually casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Jesus, of course, logically proved to them that couldn't be, but He did not question the existence of Beelzebub. In fact, the Lord affirmed He exists. Thus, there is this devil, and you can call him Beelzebub if you like. You'll notice beyond all of that, He's called the wicked one in Matthew 13, 38. Evil, ungodly, desirous of wreaking havoc in God's will, that is what His desire is. Beyond the nature of His wickedness, He's called the ruler of darkness as well as the prince of this world. Highlighting again His power and the nature of His capacity. He's called the tempter in 1 Thessalonians 3.5. You and I each know that we face temptations. Who is it you suppose puts those temptations before you? It's not the elders, nor is it the Son of God. Certainly it's not God the Father, it's the tempter. Again, in his desire to win a battle, separating you from the God that loves you and separating you from the opportunity of the greatness of the blood of Christ, he puts that temptation in front of you. Will you and I be strong enough to avoid the temptation? Will we, by our character of understanding God's Word and applying it, will we be strong enough not to succumb to it? Beyond the matter of the tempter, he's called the accuser of the brethren. None of us like to be accused falsely, do we? In fact, it angers us. Doesn't it set us on end when someone accuses us of something we didn't do? Friend, the devil will accuse you. Remember what he did to Job? Here was a pious, godly, upright man. He had the nerve to accuse God. He's not serving you faithfully. He only serves you because of what you've given him. He accused Job. 
And He'll accuse you and He'll accuse me in just the same way. Beyond the nature of that accuser, He's a murderer. He's a murderer. We each loathe the crime of murder. And yet, by the character of His hatred, 1 John tells us He is a murderer. And furthermore, He wants to doom your soul and mine eternally. You see, he's, His interest is not so much physical murder as it is spiritual murder. To describe Him all of these ways leads us to close that list in the following way. The angel of the bottomless pit, the one called Belial, the one described as a serpent, that roaring lion. It is that text that we can use to c- conclude our lesson at this point. Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We noted earlier that dragons and lions are aggressive creatures. They are not pacifist. The devil is out to get you, you see. And he will waste no time in pursuing any weaknesses that he finds. Where do you stand this morning? As we've looked at the devil, we've been reminded he exists. Make no mistake about it. He's not a figment of somebody's imagination. He does exist. Though once he was right in the sense of a noble angel, he chose to rebel. And he wants you to rebel against God just like he did. And so he's going to help you. He'll tempt you. He'll encourage you. He'll put things before you so that you'll make the same mistake he did. May all of us be strong enough to never, ever let him have the upper hand to never ever succumb to those temptations He puts before us. We're promised that with every temptation that comes, there is a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, May we be joyously able to find it. Today, if you aren't a member of the body of Christ, if you haven't had your sins washed away in the blood of the Lamb, why not today? The devil, you see, is after you. You need the agency of the Christ, for without Jesus you have no power with which you could overcome Him. Today, hear the word of the Lord. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Repent of those, as I just mentioned. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. If we can help you do that today, why not today? If you've at one time been faithful but no longer are, Why not come back to that first love? At this point, if you're unfaithful, the devil has you exactly where he wants you. Because at this point, you're lost. It says the latter end with them was worse than the beginning. You need to come back to your first love today. We're about to stand and sing a hymn of encouragement. And if we could be of assistance to pray for you and with you, why not let that be known? And why not let us do that while together we stand and while we sing?